Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week in Health IT. I think it's really important to learn to write well. Written communication is key whether it's email or a report to your supervisor, when you write something, that represents you. And when they look at that, that's really your brand you're putting out there. And so focusing on that, I think, is a really important thing to do. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transcarrot, Pressgainy, Semperus, and Veritas for choosing to invest in developing the next generation of health IT leaders. A great way to keep up with all the things that's going on at This Week in Health IT is going out and following us on social media. If you want to know about absolutely everything we're putting out there, Twitter is the place to be. You can follow us at This Week in HIT, at This Week in HIT. And you can follow me at Bill Russell HIT, of course. And we're having great conversations happening over on LinkedIn as well. You can find us at This Week in Health IT. We are touching on the highlights of all the great stuff we're releasing. If you want to talk with me, we can connect on my personal LinkedIn as well, at Bill J. Russell. I love having conversations with you and sharing perspectives. And sometimes I even get to share your thoughts on the podcast. If you are more of a watcher than a listener, you can go over to YouTube. We post all of our shows there, except Today in Health IT, which is audio only, of course. All right. Welcome to 2022 and Keynote, our new show. Dr. Milligan is here, and we are looking forward to a conversation with him. This show is going to be uh, a little different than we've done in the past as a lot of you know, we did the Influence show where we really focused in on the technology. We're going to still do that. We're going to go into some detail on some things, but we're also going to have more personable conversations, get a little bit more insight into the people we're talking to. So today we have Dr. Lee Milligan with Asante Health, CIO for Asante Health. Lee, welcome. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Bill. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I would say welcome back to the show, but it's welcome to the show. So keynote's new for this year, and you're sort of the guinea pig for the show. How do you feel about that? I think you always test things out on me. <laughs> I'm starting to sense a theme here. I appreciate you doing it. You're also an advisor for the show, so you keep me on the straight and narrow. And when you saw this plan, you said, hey, that looks really cool. And so trying it out on you made a lot of sense. You know, so it's real similar to what we've been doing with Influence, except normally what I would do is I'd send questions over ahead of time and they would be very focused on, hey, what are you doing around the staffing shortage? What are you doing around this? What are you doing around that? And we'd cover an awful lot of topics, but it felt like we just got to the surface of those topics. I'm not going to try to cover 10 topics with you and just get to the surface, maybe get a little bit deeper. And I also want to get some of the background. So as with all the shows, let's start with the basics. Tell us a little bit about your health system. Tell us about Asante Health. Yeah, Asante Health is in Southern Oregon. We serve nine counties. There's three hospitals in our system. It's about $1.1 billion a year in annual revenue. I have about 100,000 ER visits per year and about 70,000 urgent care visits. And then thanks to COVID, we now have about 8,000 telehealth visits per month. We have an ACO called the Asante Health Network. 
And that's been active for a couple of years now. It's growing. At the same time, we're expanding as a system. We're about to launch on January 17th. We're going to launch two cancer centers. We've been working on for three years. We're also adding a pavilion to our flagship hospital. It's going to add about 350,000 square feet. And we are doing some additional medical practice acquisitions, as well as additional Community Connect. We currently extend our EPIC to 10 clinics and another hospital health system. We're an EPIC shop, been on EPIC since 2013, and I would say we're moderately mature on EPIC right now. Yeah. So one of the things that came up, we did the webinar with Sky Lakes, and they were talking about the area that they serve, and it shocked me how much land there is in between hospitals in Southern Oregon. Do you have that same kind of thing? Do you have a a pretty broad reach from a geography standpoint? Yeah, I would say we go all the way to the coast. We're a portion of Northern California. We are uh, up to and including Roseburg and then east all the way to Idaho. And depending on the, the actual subspecialty being served, it may or may not actually overlap with Sky Lake. So it's very broad. Wow. Do you consider yourself having to figure out how to do rural healthcare as well? It's kind of a combination. I think from a technology perspective um, on the rural front, my biggest concern is around bandwidth and folks being able to be online as we push out our telehealth initiatives and other digital initiatives. It's great for those who can flip up their iPhone and they live in town. But for those who are way out in the coast or they're a bit more remote, I am concerned about our ability to connect with those folks. One of the interesting things for me, we had a hospital in Eureka, California, and I imagine my story there is similar to yours. We only had two carriers to choose from to go to our hospital. Do you have more than that or is that sort of your story as well? No, no, we have, we have a lot more than that. Southern Oregon has grown up quite a bit since I moved here. I moved here in 2000. And when I got here, there was one airline. Now there's seven airlines and they've expanded the, the runway quite a bit. And so, yeah, it's definitely grown up quite a bit in the last 20 years. It's good to have choices. I've seen your resume and your path was an interesting one to get to this role. How does someone go from, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go. So let's say Erie, Pennsylvania to CIO of Asante. Yeah. So when you grow up in Erie, all you want to do is get the hell out. Um, but, but, you know, well, there, but goes, it, there goes our Erie audience. They're gone. Yeah, that's right. but, but, but now in hindsight, I look back, Bill, and it was a great place to grow up. Great people, great space. You know, I even think about like my elementary school. I went to elementary school called Asbury. It sounds very quintessential for Erie, Pennsylvania. But there was a kind of a sanctuary right next to Asbury called Asbury Woods. And they would take us on hikes through Asbury Woods twice a week as in elementary school. And so it was really a great place to grow up. In terms of college, I really entered college totally unprepared. You've heard part of my story in the past. I I ended up taking some time off from college, did a variety of jobs, worked at The Gap, worked at Beacons Moving Corporation. I worked as a, a bricklayer's assistant for quite a while. And then I was a mail clerk at a law firm called Latham Watkins for quite a while, but eventually I stumbled into, you, you I know, think, Lee, I, I don't remember seeing all those things on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> These are the ones I don't actually usually point out, right. but what, where I was going with that is eventually I stumbled onto a terrific gig as a summer camp counselor in a place called Camp Cuyamaca, which is 30 miles east of San Diego. And it was there that I had the opportunity to interact with kids who had muscular dystrophy And really, it was my first opportunity ever to interact with kids who had any kind of medical scenario. And over the course of that summer, it completely changed my mojo and my thoughts about college and what I wanted to do. 
and ended up going back to school with a lot of clarity around what I wanted to focus on. And that's really how I got back into school and eventually pursued my medical degree. Wow. The path to the CIO, newcomers always ask me, it's like, what do I need to do today to become a CIO? And one of the things I tell them is the paths to getting into that chair are so varied. And yours is, is pretty varied as well. I mean, just that portion of it alone is pretty interesting. You didn't study technology. You didn't study programming or anything to that effect. You, you went the physician route. Is there a direct path to the CIO chair? And talk a little bit about your path. Maybe in, in some systems, probably not in most, certainly not in mine. I, I do think it comes down to the classic three things, people, process, and technology. On, on the people front, it's really about effectively interacting with others. And that's all about developing your EQ or the low budget version is don't be a jerk. <laughs> and <laughs> I also think it's really important to learn to write well. Written communication is key whether it's email or a report to your supervisor, when you write something, that represents you. And when they look at that, that's really your brand you're putting out there. And so focusing on that, I think, is a really important thing to do. I also think speaking effectively is key. And I'm not just talking about big speeches that you give, but really every time you speak in front of your CEO, you're re-auditioning for your role. And every time you speak to your subordinate, and I learned this the hard way, they amplify what, what you say. So you have to be mindful of what you say and make sure that you're saying things in a way that, that really makes sense. I think from a process perspective, Bill, we always have to be curious and always have to ask, are we doing this the right way? Is there a better way to do this? And be hyper-focused on that to the extent you can. And there's many different ways to do things better. Sometimes you can have a de novo creation of doing something better. Oftentimes you shamelessly steal Whatever you have to do to make sure tomorrow you're doing it better than you did yesterday, I think is key. And then from a technology perspective, as you pointed out, I didn't come to this role with a big technology background, but you have to learn enough about it so that you can provide uh, wisdom and guidance around strategically where you're going to go. And that takes work. And so I would say that no matter how you landed or no matter how you're heading towards this trajectory, understand where your strengths and weaknesses are and make sure to make a conscious effort to shore up the areas that you think you'll need once you get to that role. One of the things I tell people is it's a leadership role. The CIO used to be a technology role, speeds, feeds, RAM, all those things. But now it's a leadership role and people say, what's the best thing you can do? I'm like, go volunteer somewhere as a leader. And the reason I say volunteer leadership and I'm going to ask you, like, what, what was your first recollection of being in a leadership role? Because when I was a volunteer leader, look, I didn't get paid, first of all. And second of all, nobody around me got paid. So I, I couldn't do it by title. I couldn't do it by compensation. You have to lead by communication, by vision, by connection with people. It's a completely, but once you learn that, once you can do that, and then somebody gives you a title, you're like, Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm not even going to rely on title because right. it's not that effective anyway. Yeah, it's all about relationships, uh, 100%. One of my first experiences with leadership was being on the board of directors for our medical group here, which wasn't a, a huge group, about 300 docs. And it was a unpaid position, of course. And I recall having a conversation with a friend of mine who was really kind of mocking me for spending my time on this board because they weren't paying me. And I remember thinking at the time, why would they pay me? First of all, I'm brand new to this. I don't know anything. And second of all, it's a great learning opportunity. I was learning so much about how to conduct a meeting. I mean, just the basics, the politics within a, a meeting like that, high-level strategy, 
and so it really is all about taking advantage of those opportunities that present themselves, whether they pay or not. Yeah. You come from the physician background. Does the relationship with clinicians change somewhat when you move into administration and then when you move into the CIO role? Yeah, I, I think to a degree. I know these docs really well. We've been up to our knees in crazy patient scenarios at all hours of the night, but they do give me a lot of grace, I think, because we know each other so well, probably more grace than I deserve, right? <laughs> frankly. But they always ask me two questions. The first question is, are you still practicing? And that is really about, that's really geared to identifying whether they can still relate to me, I think. And the second is, do you like what you do? And I usually light up before I even start speaking, I light up and they, and they know that I like what I do. And that's really, I think, about understanding whether that switch made sense. And usually by the end of the conversation, it's pretty clear to them that it did. It's interesting. You talk, do you like what you do? I interview a lot of CIOs. I run into and have conversations with a lot of CIOs. And one of the things that I've known from my career is that generally I stay too long in a position, like just past when I enjoy doing it anymore kind of thing. And that usually does not end well for me. And, and I don't think it ends well for a lot of people. And I interview a lot of CIOs and I think, I, I'm not sure I see the joy in your step, in your smile, in your your tone anymore. I hear a lot of, man, I'm getting beat up a lot. This is really hard. I can't, that kind of stuff. How do you stay sane in this role? And how do you stay encouraged and motivated in the role? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's definitely ups and downs associated with it for sure. I do think it comes back to relationships. No matter how challenging the role is for the CIO, the frontline staff have very challenging scenarios. They're pulled, they're whipsawed in a lot of directions. Part of our job as leaders is to corral that whipsawing and to make sure we have the proper prioritization in place so that they're not pulled in too many directions. But you got to recognize we're all part of the team and we're all pulling our weight best we can. With COVID and then the wildfires here in Southern Oregon, I think there was a tremendous amount of kind of camaraderie and teamwork, just in the essence of us kind of pulling together so we can all get to a better spot. You know, most recently with the mandates and losing staff and trying to pull together, it, it still very much feels like it's kind of Sante attempting to shuttle the community through these crises. And when you're a part of a team like that, it's hard not to be motivated. Yeah. In a town like, like Medford, you're probably the largest employer, I would assume. And Her you're also- Harry and David comes close. Well, Harry and David, of course, but you're also healthcare. So you you literally are at the center of the dinner table conversations that are going on in Medford, I would think. Yeah, for sure. And it isn't always a straight line, right? I think the Asante brand is an awesome brand, but you know, there's a lot of opinions out there about how this whole thing has shaken out over the last year or so. And so we're doing our best to try to move forward as uh, boldly as we possibly can. All right. I want to take you back to the first weeks of being a CIO at Asante. Walk us through those first couple of weeks, like coming into the role and sort of your thought process as you became CIO. Okay. You tried to trigger my PTSD. I'll tell you, every now and then people ask me about the first couple of weeks when I was CIO. And so I'll start us off here with a little truth telling. I would go to a Bible study with a bunch of guys and they said, is there anything we could pray for? I'm like, you could pray for me because I have no idea what I'm doing in this job. It is so hard. It is so beyond <laughs> me. I remember saying that. They just looked at me and go, aren't you the CIO for this hospital system? I'm like, yeah, it's such a big job. I mean, I have to meet with a hundred docs. I have to meet with, I mean, the list of people I had to meet with in those first couple of weeks. And I was new to healthcare. Yeah. 
And so they'd say, Hey, you're meeting with, I don't just pick it. You're meeting with an oncologist. And I'd go, okay, what does an oncologist do? And they'd look at me like, are you kidding me? I'd go, I'm not from healthcare. I literally don't know what all these things are. Now I know what an oncologist is, but they would say some of these practices and I'd go, what part of the body do these people work on? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when this whole thing shook out, when I got the call from my CEO, it was his first day on the job. And so I get this call, tells me the position just opened up and he asked me what I thought. He didn't want to just ask me to fill the role. He wanted to have a conversation about this. And which I thought was smart. And so I expressed to him kind of the, the characteristics and skill sets I thought were necessary to be successful in this role. And then eventually he asked me to step in on an interim basis, but I didn't accept right away. I negotiated with him, I, I think in good faith. I said, listen, you need this person in this role to be successful. If I step into it, I certainly want to be successful. Asante needs this person to be successful. In order to do that, I'm going to need a couple of things. And I, by the way, I figured the time to negotiate on something like this was right then. Exactly. <laughs> and so I asked for two things out of the gate. I asked for a financial person to help me put together the numbers to tell a story. And I like to talk about that at some point. And then the second piece, of course, was for a CIO coach. And he didn't fully grasp that at first. He thought I meant executive coach. And I, I didn't really have a need, I, I didn't think, for executive coach. I really wanted a CIO coach, somebody who had been down this road before, understood the nuances of the role, and who I could reality check my world against as I navigated this. And so he, to his credit, understood that after a conversation and approved both. And I agreed, and we were off to the races. Wow. So you step into that role. Clearly, there's a little bit of insecurity in some areas. What areas were you most concerned about your ability to handle the role? Yeah, I think any CIO, no matter what your background is, you you have to do this honest assessment of what you bring to the table. And I don't care if you came here via operations or technology or clinical. You walk into it and you have one piece down really well. And there's other pieces that you don't, to your point, that you don't know all that well. You have to do that honest assessment and then put in place a plan for how you're going to shore those. Maybe not, you're never going to become, if you're not from clinical, not going to become a doctor, but you got to learn what the definition of oncology is, right? Right. You got to learn the basics so that you can navigate that world and have a plan for doing that. So for me, obviously I wanted to focus on compute, storage, networking, kind of the hardcore ITS stuff, plus the financials. And I put in place a plan for each on the hardcore IT stuff I thought probably the best way to do that is to focus on my team. I get to know them better. They get to teach me in the process. They'll know I'm curious, which I think is a good thing. And we can further our relationship while I'm learning. And so every other month, I have one of my teams come in and present to me on the work that they do in that space. So everything from stores and infrastructure, networking, et cetera, et cetera. I've learned a ton. My team is crazy smart. And they dumb it down for me so I can get a handle on it. And we furthered our relationship that way. And on the financial piece, I've done a variety of things in this space. But one of the big things, of course, has been focusing on our budgetary process, both CapEx and OpEx, and really trying to understand how we can tell stories from those numbers. I'm going to go deep dive into the financials before we do. Were you concerned at all? I imagine I know the answer to this question. Were you concerned at all going to your team and saying, hey, I don't know storage? I don't know networking. I don't understand VLANs and routes and that kind of stuff. I want you to teach me. Was there any concern in you doing that? Or did they respond well to that? Naively, I had no concern. (laughs) (laughs) 
no, I, I thought honesty was the best way to approach it. And I, I recognize that when you first start in a role, it's a bit of a honeymoon, right? You've got a, a period of grace there, and that is the time to ask. Now, three years later, if I don't understand anything about networking and compute, that's a different scenario. But I knew I had an opportunity out of the gate to be that honest with my team and to allow for that teaching and understanding to happen. And I took advantage of it. So I didn't become a doctor when I became a CIO and you have not become like a Microsoft certified engineer or anything to that effect, right? Correct. That, that is correct. Although in, in fairness, I did spend five years working as an analyst, essentially building out a variety of epic builds that came into production and going through that process, becoming certified through Epic to, to do that and learning about change management, how you can easily break production and working through the nuances of configuration of Epic was a really helpful thing because one of the challenges as a doc walking into this role is gaining credibility within the technical side, right? right. And, and so that, that's a bit of a challenge. And so you've got to walk that fine line to some extent. I re respect the heck out of the analysts and what I was trying to do was, was swim in their space to some extent. And I wanted to do it respectfully, but also I wanted to be recognized that I could navigate this space and work effectively with them. Do you think there's a difference between being an ER doc that becomes a CIO versus being a specialist that becomes a CIO? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say for me, there were two main advantages of coming at the CIO role with an ER background. And I don't know this would have applied if I was in a specialty scenario. The first is the initial workup. Somebody presents to the ER and you don't have a lot of information. And so it teaches you how to make decisions with, I'll call it preliminary data. And if you think about it, it's very much like agile versus waterfall thinking, right? So out of the gate, maybe all you know is patient's age, their vital signs, their race. And by the way, there's a reason why they call them vital signs. And then you may learn the chief complaint. You may add some data you pick up from physical exam. You may add some additional data that you acquire via labs and imaging. And you're putting together this plan that you're constantly refining as you're moving forward. So it's very agile. And so I learned, I literally learned agile to some extent via the ER. The second piece is mass casualty triage. In, in a mass casualty situation, picture this, there's, you know, bomb explodes, 200 people are laying on the ground. You have to figure out a way to categorize those folks very quickly so you can focus your attention on where it needs to be focused. And so the very first thing you do is you say, everybody get up and walk to the right side of the room. And remember, the categories are green, red, and black. So green is, I don't have to do anything, and they're going to live until the hospital. Black is, they're either dead or close to dead, and I'm not going to spend time working on them. And red is somebody who's critically ill that if you do something, you might be able to keep them alive till the hospital. So the first thing you say is get up, move to the side of the room. Everybody who moves by definition is green. So everybody who's left is either red or black. And so you got to focus your time on figuring out who's red and who's black. And some of the black are alive and you don't work on them. That's a kind of a strange concept, but it's really, it's really important because if you spend 10 minutes on that person who likely will die anyways, that's 10 minutes you could have spent on the, the folks who are in the red category. And it was the very first time I learned the business concept of opportunity cost. So I do think there's a, a fair amount of applicability from that world that applies directly to this role. We're, we're gonna cover the ransomware event because it sounds to me like that kind of background and training where you have limited information, especially at that first phone call, 
and you have to start making decisions on treatment, if you will. That probably came in handy, but I'm going to come back to that because I do want to hit the financial. The IT budget is an enigma to people who are not in health IT. They just look at it and go, man, all this money, you guys have to be building castles made of gold with all this money because it generally is one of the bigger budgets within the healthcare organization. But even seasoned CIOs struggle to navigate this. And I really love what you've done in this area. You, you've really put a good process and framework around it. So let's talk a little bit, and I know you're going to say I haven't wrestled it to the ground, but let's talk about how you did wrestle it initially to the ground and how it has evolved over time. Yeah, I think in the beginning, Bill, it was all about creating organization and clarity about current state. So I really just wanted to understand what do we have in place? And what I found initially was concerning because in fairness to those who were asking questions from the outside, we didn't have a uniform, transparent system in place. And so, for example, our contracts uh, and contract renewals were all located on some manager's desktop someplace. And so just that simple concept of bringing every IT-specific contract to a central location where we have a single repository that we can all access that's sortable by manager, combined with a workflow in place that allows us to 120 days before renewal, do a assessment. And we have a workflow in place now that asks really good basic questions. I, I stole this shamelessly from Will Weeder, the CIO of Peace Health. He actually posted one time on social media, here are the six questions that I ask at renewal time. And we added to that by a couple, but they're basic questions. Do we still use this product? Does this product overlap with anything else? Are we calculating the cost by volume or numbers or whatever it might be correctly? And what we found over time after we put this in place is that there's been a number of contracts that were either being overcharged for or we actually weren't using to the extent we thought we were, we were able to actually drop. And so just by doing that one thing alone and then telling that story to my CEO and my CFO, I think really helped improve the relationship between kind of external executives and the IT team. Now, I want to talk about budgeting now because uh, you and I have talked about this. You had to make the budgeting process easier for your team. And we all go through this, right? So when it comes budgeting season and our team, just they're, they're, you could say, see their countenance yeah. just go like, yeah. oh my God, on top of the work we're already doing, we now have to do this. And I have to go to this spreadsheet and this spreadsheet and this thing and this thing and pull all this together for you. And this means I'm working nights and weekends to, to do all this. And you looked at that and said, okay, we're, we're going to make this better. Talk about that. Yeah. So that was really grounded in the concept of storytelling. So I really felt like whatever numbers we put into whatever spreadsheet we're using, we have to be able to ultimately pull them out in a way where we can explain things with clarity to folks that don't normally swim in our lane. Smart people, CFO, CEO, other executives who need to understand why we're moving forward in a certain direction. So that was the end goal. And then we worked backwards towards creating a single kind of uniform spreadsheet that each manager can fill out that helps tell that story. So if you look at the spreadsheet, one of the things it asks is, if we don't do this, what will be the operational or clinical impact? And having that level of clarity around each thing we're spending money on allows me to ultimately at the end have those 
robust conversation, shall we say, with our uh, other executives and have clarity around what the impact will be of not moving forward with that. And so we put together this spreadsheet, huge credit to Allison Graffis, Kate Amaday, and others who worked on this for quite a while, and ultimately ended up creating a scenario where we could have all the directors have their individual spreadsheets, and then ultimately those roll up into, into mine. So now I can quickly look, sort by director, sort by manager, and quickly see the spend, the category, and the operational impact of not doing something. How did you make the process easier for them, though? Well, when I started, we actually had three separate locations where they were putting things. So one of the first things we did was cut that down by, by one. So now it's only two separate, and we're actually working on an integration right now where it'll be just one. Hope to get there at some point. And then we removed columns that really didn't make sense, that weren't part of that storytelling process, that were just added noise associated with it. And then the other piece that I think is really important is I had them categorize potential cuts. So I don't, I don't know how you guys did it when you were at St. Joseph's, but here we put together an initial proposed budget, and then usually we get feedback that requires us to go back and trim. Well, I didn't want them every time we do that to have to kind of wring their hands and think about it and, and whatnot. I wanted them to categorize things in the beginning as green, yellow, and red in terms of cuts based on operational impact if we don't do it. And so now when I come back and I say, okay, I'm going to need uh, X number of cuts, they can quickly look and say, okay, is, are we in green territory or are we in yellow territory? And I can say we're in green territory. They say, okay, here are the four things I would suggest moving forward. Interesting. One more quick point about that. And it, just to give you an example of kind of how this stuff ultimately impacts how we spend, most recently, this last budget season, I was trying to add some additional dollars for information security, as you might imagine. And I wanted to add three things. I wanted to add a, an FTE. I wanted to add a offsite storage. And I wanted to add uh, NDR, right? We, we chose extra hop. And for folks who are not in our space, they look at that like, why are you spending more money? Are we spending a lot of money? And so I ended up putting together a slide that had only three things on the slide. And on the left was the total InfoSec operational spend. In the middle was the ITS InfoSec spend over total ITS spend. And on the right was total InfoSec spend over total operational spend. And as you can imagine, by comparison, that number looks not huge. And when I talk, when I show that number and I combine it with the risk to the system, then asking for those three things actually became fairly straightforward. You used the word better early on in our conversation. And I think some people get sort of, uh, I don't know, they get wound up early on and they look at all the problems that they're facing. You're generally not brought in as a CIO. I'm not saying this about your situation, but generally a lot of CIOs come in under duress, right? Something happened, CIO left and you're, you're brought in. And then they look at all the problems that there are and they, they sort of get, just get wrapped around the axle. There's just too many things to solve. But what I hear you saying is triage, it's your ER background, right? It's, it's like triage, figure out red, black, and green. And then you go on from there. And then every week you come in, you go, how do we make this better? It's better. It's just a constant iteration of let's make it better. Let's make the budgeting process better next year than it was this year. Let's make our infosec better next year than it was this year. It's just, everything's just an incremental improvement 
over and over again. We don't do a lot of like leapfrogging. We just keep making it better along the way. It's nice when we get to leapfrog though. It is. I think it's also a recognition that there are a lot of things working well, right? So again, it's opportunity cost. You don't want to focus on your attention and time and effort on things that are already working really, really well. So calling that out, I think does two things. One, it, it allows you to focus on what matters. And number two, it lets your team know that they really are doing a lot of things really well, which I think is, is important because you don't want to come in and say, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater here, because that, that just sends the wrong message. Uh, even if it were true, and I can't even imagine that ever be true, most places are doing something very well. And we were doing a lot very well, I think, but there was opportunity and that's what we try to focus on. Absolutely. All right. So you participated in our webinar on ransomware, a community connect partner of yours, Skylakes Medical Center was ransomed. And we had four people on that webinar. So uh, a lot of times when that happens, you only get about 10 minutes to talk. And I'd like to expound on that experience a little bit more with you. We'll start with the, the phone call, which I guess is where this starts for Asante. Talk about that night, getting that phone call and what your response is immediately following. Oh, so you want to hear the real story? <laughs> no, that was, that was a great webinar. That was yeah. the real story, but no, um, I'm just kidding. I'm but, just kidding. but the Sky Lake story was really the focus of that. So sure. that was about 25 minutes of the total webinar. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. The phone call was, was scary, right? You get this phone call from the CIO of an, the other system. You've got your Citrix and VPN connection and FTP all connecting to, to that system. And they call and say, hey, we've been hacked. We don't know exactly what's going on. All we know is this thing called Ryuk. And I hadn't heard of Ryuk before. So I'm like everybody else Googling this as I'm talking to the CIO, trying to figure this out. And the, my biggest concern was the time delay. So there was between infection and expansion of the infection, and our phone call was somewhere around six hours. And so I was very concerned about that. So I pulled my team together. We immediately cut ties and then began an introspection, essentially looking to see if we had gotten infected by this. Well, at the same time, my team is looking at Ryuk, really trying to understand the nature of Ryuk and trying to gather more information. So we're gathering information while at the same time, we're looking at our internals to see whether we have any infection. On top of all that, this is our Community Connect partner, and we certainly wanted to be uh, mindful of the catastrophe they were experiencing and doing our best to help support them in that process. But those were kind of the initial thoughts that that happened. Is that an all hands on deck kind of event, even though you hadn't been infected per se, the fact that you were in close contact? Yes, to an extent. I mean, there's very little like an, a certain people on my team can do in that circumstance. So certainly it's all hands for the directors, most of the managers, and certain specific teams associated with obviously InfoSec, but some other teams as well. All right. So you start to wade in and I assume, again, like your ER background, you start to get more and more details, more and more information as you move forward. So what are you learning as that day unfolds, as the next week unfolds? I think I learned that the processes that Skylake's talked about this, they had some challenges with their, their scenario around what, what vendor to go with and looking at their, their cybersecurity policy, et cetera. What I learned is that I didn't know enough about my own cybersecurity policy. And I really needed to make a, a conscious effort to understand the policy, what's in place, and to make sure that I agree with the, with the tenants of, of the policy, as well as having my, the folks on my team have a clear understanding of that uh, as well. I also recognize that we have this 
connect scenario. And it, it, it made me think about it differently. I realized that we're extending Epic to Skylay. Skylay's got infected. We could get infected. But if that happened, we could also infect other sites that we send Epic to, the other nine clinics that are on our system. And so it, it got me thinking about this whole process differently. At the time, we didn't have offsite storage with an air gap. And so I'm happy to report that we put a lot of things in place as a result of this, like everything else we've been talking about in terms of incremental improvements. I don't know that this was a evolutionary change, but certainly we made a significant number of, of improvements based on that experience. Now, Skylakes talks about the fact that they had the technology in place, but they didn't configure it the way they would have liked to have. We looked very critically at our own internal configuration to make sure that we were staying up to par on that piece uh, as well. So it, it it basically allowed us to do this internal reflection that was ultimately good for our system. We got better because of what happened to them. The other piece that I'll, I'll say that was kind of fascinating is that I really wanted to understand if something was in our system and it wanted to get to our backups, how fast would that, would that process happen? It was pretty, pretty quick that that process can happen. So we literally disconnected our backups for a period of time. Right. And I know that sounds a little crazy to folks, but you know, it, in very simplistic terms, we wanted to make sure there was no possibility that years and years of our data could be in, in, encrypted and infected. Wow. I'm going to point people to that webinar. If, if they're interested, they can hit it on our website. It's the ransomware webinar. It was done in the fall of 2021, really well attended and listened to. One of the stats I give to people, it's such a compelling story. We do the webinar and 98% of the people stayed for 56 minutes or longer on a 60 minute podcast. And they're like, you're kidding me. I've never heard of that. Kind. And I'm like, it's a compelling story. I mean, it's, it's almost like a, it's like a, I don't know, a suspense novel that's sort of unraveling as we tell the story. And it just happens to have a bunch of educational components in it, but it, it really is fascinating. It's a John Grisham novel, basically. Um, it is. And unfortunately, <laughs> it is those events that cause us to step back and go, oh, do we have all the disaster recovery we need? Do we have all the cybersecurity we need? It, it usually is the events. I know for us at St. Joe's, we had a, a breach two, two weeks into my tenure as CIO. Oh, man. And, and I'm sitting there going, okay. And it was man-made configuration error on a server, a SharePoint server, and it was sending information out it shouldn't have. But it was a great opportunity because when you have those opportunities, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste, you get a right. chance to step back and say, are we doing the right things? Do we have the right process, procedures, investments, technology, partners, insurance contracts, I guess, is you know one of the things we learned from this one. All right, let's focus towards the future a little bit. As you look forward to 2022, what's top of mind for the role of CIO at Asante Health? Well, we got a lot going on, as we've talked about. The two cancer centers going live in January, the pavilion, a huge extension to our flagship hospital, a bunch of acquisitions, a lot of community connect, additional community connect, which I'm excited about. But for me, the biggest thing by far is recruitment and retention. In essence, I really want to make this the best damn place to work in healthcare IT. That's something that we should work on anyways. And with everything that's happening in the industry, it's become absolutely imperative that CIOs focus on this, in my opinion. And really, I'm going to focus on kind of four main elements. The first is compensation. You got to get this piece right. And one of the pieces we're doing on this is we used to do a every two-year industry assessment. And I've worked with HR, and now they're willing to do that every six months. 
And I recognize you can't monetize your way out of a retention issue, but you have to pay enough so that you take the money piece off the table. You can focus on the other elements associated with it. Flexibility. Our folks are they're juggling kids, home life, COVID. As we talked about locally here, the wildfires. And as leaders, it's really up to us to create an environment where it's flexible enough, where they can balance those things and then be able to also work on the work. Balance itself, I, I think a combination of balance of you know delivery of product with the development of relationships. I, I've noticed that my staff, the, the more they get to know one another, the more they get to support one another, the, the more they're able to be effective in their roles. So striking that balance. And then lastly, really professional growth and satisfaction. One of the pieces that we're trying to get right here is the role around the Epic Analyst. In our system, we now have an associate Epic Analyst, an Epic Analyst, and a senior Epic Analyst. And we didn't always have a level of clarity around those three roles, particularly the senior Epic Analyst role. And so I've had the team and, and myself working on that to get that piece right. Previously, for example, we had, we had a cap on the number of senior Epic Analysts that we had in our system. And that cap just seemed gratuitous. It just didn't make sense. And so we lifted that cap because the reality is that if somebody has good experience and is really good at what they do, technically savvy, there should, they shouldn't have to wait till somebody leaves or dies <laughs> to be able to move into that role. And so that's been received very well, I think, by staff. We're also doing extra stuff like we've, we've provided LinkedIn Learning, for example. I think it used to be called lynda.com and LinkedIn acquired it. That's been really well received by the staff and, and they're using that as well. And then we're trying to encourage advanced degrees for folks and try to support that and actually pay for at least a portion of that. One of my Epic analysts recently got her uh, master's of healthcare operations degree. So you might think, gosh, how does that apply to an Epic analyst? Well, you know, understanding how the business of this world works can only help an analyst do their job better. So really focusing on those four elements for my team and looking for creative ways to make this place the best damn place to work in healthcare IT. So if somebody's listening to this and they go, wow, that sounds like the place I want to work. How do they find out more information about getting an IT job at Asante? I would encourage them to email me directly, lee.milligan at asante.org. And I'd be happy to point them in the right direction. You know, most people, if they would say that, I'd say that's kind of disingenuous. But with you, I know you're going to get back to every one of those emails, which which is fantastic. It's interesting when we're talking about retention and those kind of things. I think we simplify it too much and say, are we going to work in the office or work remotely? And is that going to be enough? I like the fact that you put those four uh, factors together, but I do want to focus in on, on, on that aspect of it. I heard one CIO say, we're now able to hire in 50 states. I mean, is that practical for, for you out of Medford or are you looking for more of a regional approach or even a local approach? Yeah. I mean, it's actually hard for HR to do that. It costs them between six and $10,000 to set up the individual state stuff every time we do that. I think we're in 12 states right now, but I think the industry is heading that way. So we have to do that. I do think it's ultimately advantageous to live closer by, but the reality is we have to open up uh, across the board. And we're doing that, I think, fairly effectively. We're trying to be mindful of the, the impact to those who are close by. So for example, if we have an analyst team that are part of a particular team, and that team has to come in to do testing, for example, at one point prior to go live. The team that's local, if they're required to come in, they might ask the question, well, hey, someone so that lives in Tennessee doesn't have to come in. 
what's going on there? So we're grappling with those questions right now. We did pull together a team, an internal team within IT to look at this exact issue of how staff can stay connected to one another and stay connected to leadership despite the fact that we're in this distributed model right now. And that team is formulating right now some recommendations. Interesting. All right. We're going to close out on the personal side. You appear healthy. You appear, I mean, after a couple of years in the CIO role, I was not nearly as healthy as I was when I started. Just based on social media, you write a fair amount. You spend a lot of time outdoors. I mean, is that sort of your outlet? Yeah. I mean, I have a ton of advantages working in my favor. First, I have a wife who's incredible. And she's my partner on, on all things. And she and I spend a lot of time outdoors. We do a fair amount of hiking. We try to hike three or four times a week. if We can kind of sneak out a little bit early. We also, interestingly, ride motorcycles. So most of my ER docs friends give me a hard time about that. But yes, we ride motorcycles. And we do a lot of outdoor things. We go to the coasts and, and other places as well. We have four kids and they keep us really busy. All my kids speak Spanish. So I spent a lot of time with my kids going over Spanish and, and reviewing Spanish with them. And, and that's always a lot of fun, but just trying to do other stuff that's not necessarily associated with an LCD screen and not necessarily critical in terms of the decisions you make. And so things like hiking and, and speaking Spanish is it's all good. I'm sorry. Did you say you and your wife go out on bikes? Motorcycles. Yeah. And our kids as well. So if I pull into your driveway, am I going to see like, his and her bike there and some kids' bikes as well? Yes, you will. Wow. For, for an ER doc, man, I heard some of those stories. So our hospitals were in the LA market and those kind of things. And you could actually split lanes in Southern California. And if people don't yeah. know what that means, essentially, you could drive on the white line in traffic, which can save you a lot of time, but it can also be amazingly dangerous. And yes. some, some of the accidents in Southern California from splitting lanes is... So as an ER doc, I, I assume you get more than a little heat from your peers. I do, but, but mind you that I don't ride motorcycles today like I used to. So in the past, <laughs> when I would ride motorcycles, like my dirt bike, for example, I would ride it, I would look for holes and jumps and whatnot in order to hit them. And nowadays, I look for those same things in order to avoid them. Avoid that, yeah. so- <laughs> Understand. Uh, Lee, thank you again for your time. Thanks for going back to the early days as CIO and recounting that. I think that's going to benefit a fair number of people. And just to just to have that episode so people know, hey, the first couple of weeks of being a CIO, not, not all roses and sunshine. It's a process to get to where you feel like you're on top of things. And that could all change with the phone call this afternoon, I would imagine. One last thing I'll leave you with, Bill, is that when I first came into the role, I did reach out to a number of CIOs who were awesome, Ed Marks, John Halamka, Michael Pfeffer, and others who gave me some great advice kind of out of the gate, and they were kind enough to share with me their time. If any of your listeners are headed on this trajectory or are newly into the CIO role, I would be more than, than happy to spend time with them and share with them personally kind of some of the tidbits I picked up along the way. Fantastic. Lee, thanks again for your time. Always great to have you as a guest. What a fantastic discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have everyone on my team listening to this show. It's conference level value every week of the year. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. 
Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Prescani, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.